And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Plan to attend the Virtual Tree Canopy Conference. Trees are more important than ever. This virtual conference focuses on preserving trees in our communities and examines important topics, including tree equity, making the benefits of trees available to everyone. You will learn which tree species will do best as the climate warms and the importance of planting diverse species. You will see how warmer temperatures change the geographic ranges of insect pests and what that means for preserving trees. Speakers include Paul Meyer, retired executive director of the Morris Arboretum, Jad Daly, president of the American Forests, and Mike Rupp, professor of entomology at the University of Maryland. Each session carries one CEU for International Society of Arboriculture Certified Arborists. To register, visit www.marsarb.org backslash classes or call 215-247 5777, extension 125. Sponsored by the Morris Arboretum of the University of Pennsylvania and the Haverford College Arboretum. Today, uh, John Berryhill is the landscape curator for the Botanic Garden of Smith College, Northampton, Massachusetts, where he has worked for over 23 years. In that time, he has served several roles, including wildflower gardener and arborist, and as chief arborist for 15 years. John has transformed the care of Smith's College Arboretum from an external contracted operation to an internal one with a team of three certified arborists. Now as the landscape curator, John is tasked with ensuring that the building and management of the outdoor collections at Smith are are rooted and reflective of the Botanic Gardens collection policy. His current work is oriented towards building a strong conservation component to the collections and operations and building partnerships that will amplify the value of his work. John also manages the outdoor horticulture staff and is primary partner for student interns, workers, and pupils in Smith's garden spaces. Besides all the aforementioned activities, John is currently a graduate student at Smith College and is studying how botanic gardens like the one at Smith can collaborate to build meaningful conservation collections to effectively address our current crisis of global biodiversity loss. John, welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. We have so many questions for you, we can't wait to ask you. So the first one, um, I have for you, um, after visiting Smith College uh, two years ago, I noticed uh, the, the diligent care that was taken um, on the campus with your team to the veteran trees. What I want to know is, uh, 
how how do you maintain these legacies and and why are they so important to the, the school well first of all thank you uh so much for for reaching out to to smith and to me and inviting us to be part of the the message and the mission of this podcast uh, really grateful to have a chance to connect with um with you and and uh, the audience before i even get to to, to what we we do to our trees i, sh I should say that none of it could really happen if there wasn't this sense of uh, sacredness in the Smith community about the Arboretum there. Um, if, if people aren't familiar with Smith, uh, we're a small women's liberal arts college in Northampton, Massachusetts. We've been around about 2,500 students, 125 acres, the Botanic Garden there. A lot of, we're still sort of fighting the perception that the Lyman Plant House that's in this beautifully nested central uh, location up against the, the uh, Mill River uh, is not the extent of the Botanic Garden. We have our glasshouse collections. We have named gardens right outside the, the glasshouses there and scattered throughout campus, both big and small. And then, of course, the Arboretum is spread throughout campus. All of the landscape trees on campus are labeled and are accessioned uh, parts of the, the Arboretum collection. That's been the case almost from the beginning. Uh, when Smith started in the, the late 19th century, uh, our first president uh, saw the need for campus-wide expansion. And uh, part of that investment was bringing in the, the Olmsted firm, uh, which was, you know, incredible Olmsted's firm, to design that landscape, to, to, to handle the, the aesthetic component of that, and brought in, um, I think, one of the, the more underappreciated figures in, in American botany are William Francis Ganon, who was the first director of the Botanic Garden, to be the scientific backbone of that collection or to, to, to build that collection. And it was intended to just to, to marry the, the needs of the scientific community at Smith with the, the sense of place that the Olmsted firm was trying to create. And that's always been the identity. It was, uh, as I understand it, that was the first time that had been done. A lot of colleges and universities have mimicked that model since. It's a really good one. Um, we appreciate being able to tell our students when they come to Smith and most Smith students stay on campus, live on campus for four years, that you're living in an arboretum, you're living in a botanic garden. Not a lot of people get to say that. That for over one and a quarter centuries has created this very special sense of place. I'm sure you both really can appreciate how trees shape our sense of place, how they're these sort of emotional markers of time when we come back and see them and see how they've grown and, and realize sometimes more than we realized how critical they were to um, the memory we formed of a, of a place. And the new students who come in with, you know, caring about the natural environment, wanting to save the world, I don't mean that in a sort of uh, childish way and in a very determined uh, way, understanding that the, the environmental crisis we're facing, to people that, uh, you know, who come back for their 50th, 60th reunion and, and understand that the, the natural environment at Smith is really just critical to the DNA of Smith. You, you two, being certified arborists, can appreciate that the biggest challenge in maintaining those trees is what happens below ground. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, even arborists forget that. But it is, you've been to Smith, you've seen there, there's a lot of buildings. Everything's really tight. We didn't, we never, being nestled in the town of Northampton, which is 
I'm not sure how many people, maybe 20-ish thousand people. It's, it's right near downtown. So we don't have the luxury of, exp as, as the, the, the campus has grown, it's become more dense. We, we haven't had the, the opportunity to keep as much open space as people typically associate with a homestead landscape. There are a couple of sacred places where you can see that homesteadian aesthetic come through, but there aren't as many of them because we've had to put buildings in so many spots. And part of the beauty of the landscape is that all the infrastructure is underground, which is gorgeous, but it is not good for roots. There, if you could see the Smith campus with x-ray vision, you would just see a spider web of pipes and steam tunnels and information data cables and electric uh, going through there. And it's just a, a, a nightmare sometimes because those things fail and they have to be upgraded. They have to be renovated. New buildings go in, new buildings get, or old buildings get renovated. There's a lot of digging that happens and contractors don't understand the vulnerability of the rhizosphere. That's just the, 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 um, the soil environment that the roots exist in. And I remember learning for the first time was actually taking the horticulture class at Smith. I came into Smith as an econ major. So uh, one of the benefits of working at a college is you're, you're allowed to take classes. And learning that healthy soil is 50% empty space is kind of a mind blow that, that, that wish, would shy you that we think of it as a solid and we don't think of uh, air being one of the big determining factors, oxygen specifically, uh, of how roots grow and thus how trees thrive or fail. And so it's hard to communicate effectively just how profound sloppy practices around construction can, can kill trees and we've, we've lost them. And fortunately we, we've in, in that type part of, we, we have a um, tree protection plan that's shared with our project managers and with, with all contractors on campus that has really robust protocols and regulations and, and frameworks for communication, underscores the Botanic Gardens um, authority to step in and stop an operation. I don't know if you've ever been a conference at a conference where this topic comes up, like how do you stop people from parking on tree roots and, and ruining soils? Um, and fines seem like the obvious way to do it. The problem is, is if you have a five, 10 or $50 million project, and you tell a company that they're gonna to have to pay a even $10,000 fine if we catch you parking on tree roots, well, guess what? They write the $10,000 fine into their bid and you end up paying your own fine. Uh, so it, it's, it's ineffective, but uh, we, we found that the most effective strategy is early communication, vigilance, and again, keeping that authority, if time is, you know, no matter what their expectations are, time is money for them. If we can, if we can stop a project, the only times I know that I've upset contractors and it was when I had to say, stop, you, you can't go any further until we get the project manager out here and we correct this situation. You don't, you don't make a lot of friends doing that. Uh, so you gotta, gotta be friendly about it, but, uh, but that's uh, been helpful. Yeah, it's been, we've, we've pivoted from, a, from that, and as you mentioned in the intro, an, an external operation to internal. We're just able to do a lot more work that way. The team we have right now, uh, Ben Green, our chief arborist, and Dave Dion, our, our newest member of our team, is, our, is a hybrid physician. He's, he's a, a certified arborist and a gardener. And uh, together, we've been able to really rethink what we do in terms of 
preventative tree work, forward-thinking proactive tree care, and uh, tree risk management is something we've gotten into. And it's, it's a really exciting time to go from really a while ago having no tree expertise on the crew and relying on, on outside expertise to having an enthusiastic, a contagiously enthusiastic, I think we feed off of each other's curiosity and excitement. So, so, pro, so proactive is really important versus reactive to you. Um, one of the things that I learned while I was over in Europe M, is to learn how to put together a really good staging plan. Uh, here in the United States, we don't, we don't even think about uh, staging plans like we do in Europe or like they do in Europe. Um, that staging plan had to be very tight. It had to be clean and succinct how trucks are going to come in and out, where trucks are going to park, uh, how thick your bed of chips are going to be, are you going to be using rubber mats, are you going to be uh, using metal fencing versus plastic fencing, are you going to, you know, are you going to allow them a 15-foot clearance, or are you going to, what are you going to be pruning before everybody comes in, all that's done way ahead of time, but the other thing too is that we don't do here is to have everybody on the same page at the same time, talking and dialoguing at the same time so that everybody understands who is doing what and when and how. And I, I, I always, I always, my mind is always boggled that contractors here in the United States are supposed to be so brilliant and yet there's never any of that front end planning that should be done way ahead of time before anything is ever touched. I'll, I'll add to that Eva, you know, it's, um, we're getting back to that point that it's it's a the the root damage is not an instant death. It's not ripping off a, a huge branch. It's not few things kill a tree quickly other than a chainsaw or a or a, a windstorm. Um, it's hard to convince somebody that what you're doing is going to slowly start a a decline spiral in this a tree. Spiral. Yeah. Years. Um, people don't react to that. You know, well said. I'll, I'll throw on too we, the that staging plan. Our, our document's four pages long, and um, that, that's that's information that should be shared. They're welcome to reach out to me. Uh, you can look at the Smith College Botanic Garden website to get my contact info. I'm happy to have conversations with people. John, thanks for the terrific overview and everything that you've described. Although I've never seen the campus, but it's uh, not unfamiliar to Eva and myself in terms of you know, what we have here at University of Pennsylvania, uh, Scott Arboretum, Donna Swarthmore, Drexel, urban East Coast, surrounded by neighborhoods and communities, and uh, the trees uh, bringing their own age to the uh, factoring it in. It's not like a honey locust that was planted 10 years ago. So often, uh, and maybe you can tell us some about some of the more iconic trees that you have there. But uh, yeah, once that death spiral kicks in, um, there aren't a lot of success stories in terms of uh, revival, are there? There aren't. It's, um, I have yet to, you know, every once in a while you're at, you're at a conference or something and there's some product that talks about, you know, turning trees, declining trees around. And I really, I, I found it's been emotionally wise to set my expectations towards managing decline when a, when a large tree starts to decline. Uh, younger mm -hmm. trees sometimes can, um, their, 
ratio of active, physiologically active tissue to physiologically inactive tissue is very favorable when they're young and it's not when they're, when they're old. And um, right. it's, it's very hard to, to turn around if, uh, a big tree. Are you in the luxury of uh, uh, specking out soil types and uh, bringing in engineered soils to, for new plantings? Uh, we don't typically do that. We've taken, it's, it's more, been more efficient for us to, uh, well, rather than supplementing soils, to, to, to just take macro level um, judgments about the soil and plant accordingly. We haven't, I haven't noticed that we've misjudged soil nutrients the best. I am very much a uh, proponent of not applying fertilizer supplements, except if a soil analysis indicates that you need one. Right. Um, it's, I, you, it shouldn't be done as a matter of course, and it could be detrimental as a matter of course, because if you're just, okay, I think that I often tell our students that come through here, you always hear fertilizer being called tree food. And usually when fertile, people talk about fertilizer, they're specifically talking about nitrogen and nitrogen really functions. It's, I don't know if it'd be right to say it functions more like a hormone, but I often think about it that way in terms of it, it directs the uh, machinery that the, the, the genetic machinery of the tree to divert its food, which is carbohydrate, into certain aspects of tree growth at the expense of others. Right. If you're getting uh, shoot growth at the expense of root growth, or at the expense of secondary metabolites that really function as the tree's immune system, with their quotes, mm -hmm. um, that that could actually be really de detrimental to the tree because that's. Do you do any air spading at all? Yes, um, we do. Uh, that's a, a great tool to have, and that, actually, that's a great. Uh, you know, when when those mistakes do happen on the construction site, that is a bit of a, a remedy. If, if people listening don't know what an air spade is, it's using a. Com the type of compressor you'd see that runs a jackhammer, a really powerful air compressor run through a nozzle and excavating air with, um, with high pressure through that high pressure nozzle. And we use that either to determine where roots are so we can minimize ram damage if we have to dig down. Sometimes we can dig around something if we can locate it first and also as a compaction remedy where you can do a, a larger surface area and um, th that has been compacted. We've had to do that where people haven't adhered to those uh, uh, standards that are on our tree protection plan. And we said, you know, this, we, we said no drive in there, uh, or we said it had to be done this way where you, if you put pads out, you have to bring the trucks, you have to back out and, and uh, keep the wheels on the, the pads when you're driving across the lawn or whatever. And uh, they, if they have to spend $1,500 to have a tree company come in and air spade it to restore the, the soil structure, they'll, uh, they won't do it again. And do you usually use a compost with that, mix a compost in with that after? We, we haven't had to, but we are actually, um, we're, we're in the midst of the biggest construction project, I think since I've been there in my almost quarter century, which is the renovation of our, our main library, the Nielsen Library. Mm -hmm. um, it's coming to a close. It's um, going to be stunning. It's really beautiful. I'm excited about the landscape that's going in there, but those things just can't happen in close proximity to big trees without bad things happening. We've, uh, we've lost a couple mature trees, um, and we have put a lot of effort 
into protecting the ones that we think we can protect. And it's funny how, so we just uh, about two weeks ago ran into, you know, on the design, there's this subtle grade change that you don't even notice in the plans. Nobody caught it. And all of a sudden we got the contractor telling me, it's like, it looks sort of flat, but like what, what was a, you know, a 18 inch incline, uh, you know, what, what say for 20, a 20 foot long path that used to go up, rise up 18 inches is now rising down 18 inches, which means you have to go down three feet there and the, the soil that contains tree roots on either side, right near an old tree. How do we manage that? Um, and um, the plan really had to be stuck to, there's a lot of good things about the plan. One of the, the, the big benefit of, of this design is it's gonna make it a lot more accessible. Uh, to people with disabilities, uh, the, the, the grade is, is really key, and it was not before. It was really not an, an inclusive environment. But what we're going to be doing, because we did have to cut two six-inch roots on an American elm. Um, now, elms are super tough, but uh, six-inch roots are six-inch roots, um, as, as well as a bunch of other roots. Uh, we're going to be re doing a, a soil invigoration there where we're going to be adding some biochar, um, and maybe if we can get some some compost here, anything that we can throw at that, we'll, we'll throw at that in, in hopes of reviving that tree and, and or, or keeping it thriving because it's actually doing quite well now, despite it being in a harsh environment. You had mentioned at the outset that it's a relatively tight and that the students live on campus, which is also an arboretum. So day in and day out, do you have a sense that a lot of trees are struggling with compaction to the students tromp around after uh, a drizzly rain and knock out even more pore space? Uh, not to the extent, I think, I think that's something that we, a, a problem that we're okay with having. We, we want the environment to feel usable and to feel welcoming. And yes, there are the goat paths that inevitably happen, you know, on whether it's college campuses or towns, if you can save three seconds by cutting the corner, you'll cut the, people cut the corner. Um, yeah. So we, we, we do battle that, but I don't think we see that on a scale that it's a problem and we sort of plant with that in mind, you know, where, where we think, you know, we need a tree that can tolerate a compaction. We go to your, your, uh, your bald cypress and your, your ginkgos and your, um, your red maples and whatnot. Uh, and uh, if we have something special that we don't know, that, that one goes off, off the beaten path a little bit. How are your oaks doing in general? They're doing well. We don't have, you know, there's a few things on our doorstep, the thousand cankers. I don't know if that's in your area. That's a, for people listening, that's a, a pathogen that's, that's very much on our radar. Um, uh, oak wilts and, and so on. We always get those updates at the arboriculture uh, seminars. They're doing well. The biggest oak threat that we have, have had lately is sort of this double threat of um, drought. Mm -hmm. Last year was good, the year before that was good, but the two years before that, so let's say three and four years ago, were terrible, tremendously dry. So that was the, the first punch. And what came with that was uh, extreme suppression of the two pathogens that keep gypsy moth in check. And we lucked out in the Arboretum. I live about 15 miles due west of the Arboretum and about halfway on my drive home uh, two or three years ago for two summers in a row, just about every oak 
was to it would it would make you cry. It, will, it mm. looked like Armageddon for a for a yeah. Lorax. It was just frightening. Um, and uh, they they died. We we um, in in my hometown, Belchertown, I would suspect uh, we lost uh, one out of it's it's primarily like oak uh, dominated forest around here, um, and I would say we lost one out of every five oak trees, mature oak mm. trees. Uh, just heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. Stressing town budgets because they can't keep up with just the ones that are posing risk dead trees on roads right now. Um, it really is heartbreaking. There was some data I, I did, um, actually looked into this for my, um, a class I was taking last year for uh, my graduate studies was looking into, I was, I was concerned, it had been over a year since the, well, probably three years, two, three years since the, the defoliation had started, not since the tree death had happened, but since those oaks had been defoliated and was curious what that new light to the forest floor would um, do to invasive species recruitment. Right. Good news was it wasn't what I expected. It wasn't as bad, but uh, oaks are struggling, but the rains that came two years ago did wipe out the... Uh, um, the gypsy moth in pretty spectacular decisive fashion. Can you tell the audience how gypsy moths, uh, how the wear and tear on an oak uh, ultimately does them in? Yeah, so they, they, it's the, not the moth, but the caterpillar, the larval stage that prefers oak. They got, the population was so bad, you saw them on things like pine and maple and things that I didn't think that oak, that gypsy moth got into. Um, it's a it's a pest that I think was first introduced in a in a failed attempt to to start a, a silk industry around here. They're not the traditional silk moth, but it was an attempt to see if you could use that caterpillar to make silk. You couldn't, but it did escape. It uh, mm. wrecked havoc on the 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 natural environment. Um, there were some attempts to deal with it with with toxic chemicals, but when these things go in, in tremendous numbers, they can defoliate millions and millions of acres at a time. Mm. Uh, it's just absolutely frightening. They, they're most active in, I wouldn't say the month of May to early June, and then they kind of disappear because they go into their, I might be using the wrong word, chrysalis, whatever moths do, in a, uh, but they, yeah. they, they're metamorphosis stage, and then the, the moths themselves are not really problematic. They don't know if they even eat. Uh, they just reproduce, lay eggs. The egg masses can have like 500 to 800 or more uh, eggs per mass. And uh, the oaks, unlike some species, I don't, down there, I imagine you get, uh, around the same time, you'll often see sycamore, native sycamore trees completely defoliated hmm. from anthracnose fungi. Um, and they look like they're dying, but you just wait till the temperature warms up and it's a little drier right. and they're less conducive to fungi being around. And they spring right back. They just say, oh, it's spring again. I'll just push out some new, uh, new leaves and new shoots. And they somehow can tolerate that year after year after year. The oaks do not. So 80% of their food for that year gets cut off. And sometimes you can take one year of that, maybe two, um, that, that third year or less is, is going to cause massive oak mortality. And that's what happened to us. So I'm interested to hear what you're thinking about 
when you do get to plant new trees? Are there things that you're excited about bringing in or that you've planted recently that you want to tell us about species wise? I would say that the general uh, shift, what, what has me excited most now as a curator, um, well, some guidelines that actually guide my thing. I, I always have the, um, our collections policy that, that uh, is the main um, sort of roadmap for curatorial decisions. Um, and there's also the, the reality of the physical landscape we're working in. So there's the challenges that are there that I kind of talked about what yeah. trees going to survive in this place. There's the macro level aesthetic decisions of, you know, does this support the, that, does it honor the Olmstedian uh, legacy that, that we're trying to preserve as best we can there? That's actually, I imagine that's been a challenge from the very beginning. I've, I've thought about this a lot recently that Olmstedian landscape aesthetics, which really in, invites the, the viewer to, to look at the, the whole, um, uh, where, where the details are subordinate to the big picture uh, versus the sort of scientific relationship, the, the relationship of the scientist to the plant. Uh, the, the, that learner is invited to look in at the most small and uh, undetected, difficult to detect element of plants to look at stamens and, and, uh, and to, to, to break little fruits apart and to look at leaf venation patterns and so on. Um, so it's fun. It's it's tremendously fun, I guess, to, to answer your question. It's the, the, yeah. probably the most fun part of my job. But we are pivoting towards um, what really botanic gardens globally are doing, pivoting away from the sort of 20th century model of aiming for diversity of species and just sort of that sort of paradigm of ownership and equating status and value with quantity and with sort of reflecting the resources you have to gather them and instead towards a 21st century model of conservation where you're really saying what's the work what's the what's the critical work that botanic gardens can and need to do that's actually a whole interesting story that i don't let me get off on that tangent because that's a whole talk sure. there but uh botanic gardens have really responded realizing that they occupy that space between the scientific community and the public um, in the botanical world we really have the capacity to, for storytelling and the capacity for um, living gene banks. So diversity within species is the topic that has me really excited now. And I just the other day got, was um, connecting with the Global Conservation Consortium for Oak, which the Botanic Garden International and uh, Morton Arboretum have collaborated to build the the nutshell description of that is that they're, they're trying to bring together on certain genera that have a lot of species that are at risk for extinction. Mm. They are looking at ways to build ex situ, meaning out of the environment um, collections that we can confidently say encompass the genome of the plant and then sort of borrow that model from the zoo where they really track maternal and paternal lines and they know the progeny that come off those plants and they know what they have uh, gene bank wise, um, I often, my, my metaphor that I use to talk about genomes, which is, has its limits, but is a good introductory way to talk about it, is if you think of it as a library of information about a species and, um, you know, where in the past we might have just cared about the most ex exciting book, you know, whether it's the Harry Potter series or something, but if you have a library that's just the Harry Potter series, you don't have a library. 
yeah. it is a Harry Potter book. Uh, and people don't realize how much uh, plant material that comes through the commercial horticulture industry, the nursery industry, is clonal material and has significantly less value and less capacity to support um, or to, to serve as a defense, as a, as a genetic reservoir that protects against that loss. Of right. Before we go, because um, we, we are running out of time, um, <laughs> I, 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 this is so fascinating. Um, can you just uh, share one tree that happens to be your favorite before we go? Sure, a Smith one or just in general? In general. general. Sure, um, gosh. If I had, if you're talking species, again, to get back to that feeling like uh, trees connect us to places, sugar maples and hemlocks. I feel my spirit is at home uh, when I'm in the woods and, and, I, and I am with those trees. Uh, an individual tree, there's uh, one uh, in the Quabbin Reservoir that's this uh, old shell of a, of a sugar maple. It's, it's, it's about a 50, 60 foot tree that is leaning. It was at one time probably an 18-inch caliper tree, but the entire core of it is gone, and now it's just this three-inch crescent that if you saw it, especially as arborists, it would, it's one of those wonderful moments where, you're, where you say, everything I knew about trees doesn't seem to apply. Not, to, not just yeah. trees, but the laws of physics is, yeah. is turned yeah. upside down here. It's this little bizarre tree that every time we have a snowstorm or a windstorm, I go back expecting to see it on the ground and to just sort of pay my respects to it. And there it is, um, defying gravity again. And it's just, it reminds me that we see things in old um, declining trees, maybe even our decline, they're, 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 the human sense of aesthetic is declining, but the tree's still being a tree and it's still doing exactly what it's supposed to do. As arborists yeah. say, what's wrong with this tree or what's right with this tree? There's nothing wrong with any forest tree. They're always just doing what trees do. And that tree reminds me of that. Well, that's a really good way to end our show today. John, thank you so much for being on, on the Planet a Trillion Trees podcast. And we hope that you'll come back and visit us and talk some more about your, your strategies at Smith College. Uh, I know that there's a lot more we need to cover. Yeah. Thank you. Anytime. I really appreciated uh, being here and, and appreciated uh, connecting with you all on this. Thank you so Thanks, much, John. John. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye.